Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Callahan. And hey, everybody. I'm Mark Shank. Well, we have, uh, I'm very excited today. We've got a guest I'm just dying to have a chat with. Uh, it's the chairman and, and, and co-founder of the Australian Turntable Company. Uh, his name is Paul Chapman. He's also the chairman of the Bendigo Innovation Inventors Festival. And in fact, that's sort of how I met Paul. Uh, I gave a talk on innovation and uh, we actually met in a couple of meetings before that. And, uh, and it's, been, uh, it's been great to uh, get to know you. So welcome, welcome, Paul, to our little podcast. Thanks, Sean. And thanks, Mark. It's actually a, a real delight to be here. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, one of the things I'd love our listeners to sort of know a little bit about is how you got started. Because you, of course, you started life as a publican, you know, and how did that go? Out of the womb? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, the career is, you know, working in pubs and restaurants and things like that. How did you move from there to running a company? And it's a global success, this company the Australian Turntable Company. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the publican venture didn't come right from the start, and although it was in the genes, uh, Mark, I can tell you. Believe it or not, Mum and Dad didn't drink. They, they abhorred it, but <laughs> their, sons, their sons and daughter did. So um, uh, we did the usual thing. Grew up, left school. Nettie and I uh, got married very young, and... Uh, 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 I had started a program in, uh, at Royal Melbourne Institute in Technology studying zoology, but we decided we'd let that be and get on with living our life and uh, started a family and got into working. Uh, had been around pubs and part-time stuff prior to that and when I seemed to find myself in country pubs doing some bar work, bar managing work, and then landed in Melbourne in a, in a very big pub as a, a department manager. So I felt full of myself when I got that role, but to tell you the truth, I was... Is this a pub we would know, uh, Paul? Uh, A pub, yeah, it's a pub out in Broadmeadows. Ah, Uh, right. And it was was, uh, an induction into a new life, leaving Broadmeadows and going to Broadmeadows. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a a, a pretty rough place. Well, Uh, at the time, it was was new to me. (laughs) It was different. But... And funny enough, it's probably where I, I really recognised for the first time the value of storytelling because um, Broadie, the pub, uh, the Sundowner was in, in Barry's Road and really was patronised mostly by the Ford Motor Company. And my role at the time was to look after the executives, uh, mostly around lunchtime and evenings, um, and to make sure that they were enjoying it. And I can remember clearly the number of times... Uh, Alan Moffat would come in and he'd be talking to guests around a table and I was, you know, sort of maitre d'ing more than anything else, but oh, a lot often invited to the table and uh, just to say good day and have a chat. Uh, Alan would, he would have them transfixed with his stories of motor car racing because they'd have executives from all around the world there. Oh, yeah. You know, I love was, that. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, one of the great... Great Australian uh, racing car drivers. Right? Yeah. yeah, and then I'd absolutely. go out. To the, that's right. And then I'd go out to the bar and uh, see some people there. Well, they were mostly the painters and dockers lads, and uh, they were they were uh, different kettle of fish and good blokes. And I remember clearly Lionel was around at the time. Lionel Rose, 
And uh, so the, it had this real mix of people uh, coming and going in the pub. Anyway, um, it lasted for a while and I enjoyed it. But to tell you the truth, I was playing a bit of footy and pretty good footy at the time. And somebody from Bendigo uh, invited me up to play footy in Bendigo, which I did. But uh, we just decided, well, uh, we didn't really have an occupation to go to. So we did some labouring and then into uh, 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 roof tiling. And then, believe it or not, uh, I was driving down the street one day and I was looking at this house being knocked down. And Nettie and I had just bought our first home for $25,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a bit different back then. <laughs> and, That's for uh, sure. And uh, I was looking for some materials to renovate it and I was driving down the street and saw this bloke bulldozing out a period, Victorian-style home, Victorian period home. And I thought, oh, why are you doing that, mate? I could do some of those things. <laughs> so I went to the council and said to the council, what's it take to be a demolition contractor? And they said, lowest price. So I said to them, next time you've got a job coming up, will you? Because it was for the council. And they were doing most of the demolishing. Um, give me a ring, will you? Which they did. And uh, I tended on the next job and I put a price in of zero. I told them I'd do it for nothing. Because they told me lowest price would win. Oh and went God. in, went in. And dismantled the building uh, from the roof down, every nail out, every brick down, brick by brick. Took part, every every component. Took what I wanted from my own place and sold the rest. And in three years, raised enough money to buy the pub. Ah, right. Uh, Is that wow. right? Oh, well, that's that was very uh, so, entrepreneurial of you, Paul. And yeah, uh, wow, and went that's to, great. yeah, and it was a need. People, people like myself were looking for stuff, and we actually. It felt good because we weren't demolishing, we were recycling. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was a great thing. So we sold the pub. Uh, after a few years, we sold the pub, went into Bendigo, uh, come back into Bendigo because the pub was out of town, out, out in the bush. Population, 200 people. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Came into Bendigo, had a couple of little food shops go. One went really well, one was a disaster. But uh, we didn't hang around that. We shut the doors and... Uh, at about the same time, I visited my late dad, or oh, dad at the time, of course, and uh, he was alive at the time. And he'd been an engineer in his life. And I went down, and he, he only had one eye. He'd lost one in the war, and he was um, reversing out of his driveway, trying to reverse out of his driveway at 85 year old. Well, he was going all over the joint, and he couldn't do it. And I said, oh, I'll help you. He said, no. Nah. He said, what I should do is build myself a turntable. I said, what's that? The, the, the least interested person in engineering when I was in when they were young was me. I, I regret it. Don't you worry. I regret not listening to some of the, the good stories he had. Anyway, I said let's do it. I had a few dollars in my pocket because I just sold the pub, and lo and behold, that was it. That was your first turntable. Well, I thought to myself, it, that can't be very hard. <laughs> Thirty-three years later, and a lot of grey hair. It's, uh, it was my first And you're day. still building turntables. But, I mean, some of the turntables you're doing now are, like, from, you know, in New York, you're, you're yeah. putting restaurants up on towers, on turntables. I mean, it's, it's a far cry from a, a turntable from your father's, you know, uh, driveway, right? Yeah. Well, how that happened, uh, fellas, was uh, I, I had to recognise where in the hell could I do something with this. And funnily enough, some thought came into my head I'd seen on television about motor shows. So I went and approached Ford Motor Company and said, listen, I'm about to start making some turntables. 
is there anything you like? And they said to us, look, we're desperate for a good product. The stuff we've got now is antiquated, it's poorly serviced, it breaks down, we'll take anything. And they placed an order, my first order, for seven car turntables. And I thought, well, God, that's great. So we got into it and we hired those turntables to their motor show circuit for 15 years. I then picked up BMW and Holden and the whole rest of them. Yeah, uh, right. And that was a good little business. And so was that through your connections at the Broadie Pub? Yeah. Uh, you know, with Alan Moffat? Yep, that's exactly how it <laughs> happened, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, and we fell into that. And at the time, when early on, I was having them made by someone else, but it worked out in a couple of years after doing that, we realised we had to bring that manufacturing to Bendigo. And it wasn't until about three, three, two years after that we actually decided to make them ourselves. Uh, and I had a couple of sons have a crack at it with me. Uh, they'd been around the world. Uh, when our kids did leave uh, high school, none of them went on to uni. They, they weren't that interested in it. Uh, when they all turned 18 at different times, we said, here's a backpack, you're going, we'll see you in 12 months' time. And they all went different parts of the world, come back and they were ready for a bit of work. Uh, and that travel for them has been an invaluable uh, experience for us now yeah. because those three sons all work in the business, in fact, manage the business. And the fact that they've all travelled in different countries has been a blessing to do business overseas. Yeah, so yeah. important, isn't it? Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, so just on, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, from there, from that, when put, we were doing show, motor shows, people would come and ask us, can you do this? Can you do that? And all of a sudden we found we're just, we're just uh, following up on requests and lo and behold, it ended up in things like you're talking about now and, and, um, and some very, very big projects uh, with, with uh, plenty to come. Have yeah. there been any moments where... Uh where it went wrong? Oh, uh, Mark, thousands of them. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we weren't engineers. Mind you, we told all our customers right at the start that you know, we were pretty new to this, but we'd get it right. But whenever anything did go wrong, we never shied away from it. We took a hit and we sorted it out. Now, this is a pretty innocuous sort of product we make. But like every other product you see anywhere, uh, and my analogy is in door handles. You don't take any notice of door handles, do you? You just go and open a, a door and let it be. Yep. If you have a look into what makes up a door handle and the engineering and the design and the mechanics around that, it's quite spectacular. And we were no different. So what we learned, what I learned very early on, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you how it eventuated, that after doing the motor shows for nine 15 years, you know, I hardly made a change to those products. Hardly made a change to them. Keep them clean. Just each year go back and get a number of motor shows because it'd be 20 car, 20 car manufacturers wanting us. So we go out and we might put 30 car turntables on a motor show five times a year. And that was a good little income for us. We'd hire these things out. Anyway, uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't make many changes, you know. And then, lo and behold, in 1999, an opposition, no, we had no opposition, a bloke in the same game who was providing rigging and lighting and other, uh, other things to make up a motor show, decided that he'd, he'd uh, offer uh, some car turntables. He hired one of ours and, 
and little did we know, we copied it and made a few good improvements and went to all the, all the motor car companies and said, listen, I'll throw a turntable in here if I get, the, if I get all the other gigs. And within one week, we lost our next 12 months. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. And you know what that was? That was a kick in the guts that I needed. Absolute smack in the, in the, in the chops. And I looked in the mirror and said, that is your fault, Chapman. You haven't changed. You haven't improved. You haven't, without even knowing the word at the time, you have not innovated. Yeah, right. And bang, and you just lost it. So I had two options. We could sit down and cry about it and run away, or we could face up to it, which we did. And then said, so, that's a nice, It's a nice segue to, you know, the top, one of the topics that we've been exploring in our corporate storytelling uh, article that this series is really all about is all the different ways you can use uh, storytelling, one of them, of course, is to support innovation. Um, but when when you hit that point when you went, oh my God, we haven't been innovating. I mean, how did then? How did you go about building that in? Then you know the innovation. What were some of the things that you ended up putting into place to ensure that you had that improvement? Well, the first thing we knew was we had to decide whether we were going to stay in that business, which means we had to try and recover our work, or we were looking at other opportunities. And mind you, those opportunities have been coming to us, but we hadn't put that much emphasis in them. Opportunities, when I said earlier, people were coming to us and asking us to do different, different things. So what we did, we actually we actually did some research as to where these things could could be applied. Because in that, by this stage, we're thinking only motor shows. And we're doing this around the world, by the way. Yeah. Anyway, um, we said, no, we think this can be done better. But if we're going to do it better, the first thing we had to do was to get ourselves better, not the product. We had to get ourselves better. And I looked and looked and I thought, and I did some homework and I thought, you know, the whole management of this company, there was no direction, there was no goals. It was just going year to year. There was no strategy, no plans. So we sat down and we said, okay, boys, we're going to do this properly. Said to the three boys, it's it's on. Let's have a crack at it. And we set her out. And if that wasn't a watershed moment, the next one, it, and it was, the, the next one was, because it took us about three years to go and learn how to do business properly, put all of the things in place. Uh, and one of those things was what we call QA accreditation, quality assurance accreditation. And we were very early into that. Uh, from a regional perspective, but we went and got ourselves accredited, which gave us the basics uh, of really good governance and business uh, practice, uh, and we applied them, and then that took us to another level, and that actually took us into getting work from other areas. I was always a little bit sceptical of the QA, quality assurance movement, actually, Paul, because I, I sort of bumped into it when I was... Um, in Canberra a number of years ago, and it was being taken on by some of the government departments. Yeah. And it seemed to me that it was just a checklist ticking exercise yeah. so that they could check off all the lists and say, you know, we're 9,001 yeah. ISOs approved quality assurance or whatever yeah. it was back then. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you 
make sure that that sort of stuff doesn't happen. I mean, uh, I would imagine that there's there's a lot of um, I don't know incentive for it to to occur that way, right? Well, I did recognise that if we did do this properly, we would possibly be in line for government work, and I was yeah. right on the money, right on the money. But more so, what we need to do, and this is this is the basis of our our business ethics and practice, we needed to convince companies that wanted to use us, who were much better companies than us and, and often bigger companies than us, that, uh, that they could uh, believe and trust in us, uh, that we would do things and get things right. QA, although very, uh, uh, very much around documentation, has behind it its processes and procedures that you need to follow to check that things are right. And when you apply that into manufacturing, it means you've got to check things all the way. And that means you've got to get people who are prepared to follow those procedures and practice. So you found, we found ourselves becoming very process-driven. But for us, not being engineers, it was a good thing. We were, we were very strong on our communication, very strong in, in endearing ourselves to our customers and looking after them. But uh, we needed to be better than that and make sure that what we were delivering was delivered properly. And, I, and th there's an old saying in, in business that you probably know of where they say uh, a brand is a promise, but a great brand is a promise kept. And nice. that's, that's what we decided we'd hang, hang our hat on. Yep. And if I can take it one step further, the third and most important watershed moment in our business career and, our, and the evolution of this company has been around about 2003, 2000, no, 2003, about 2010, um, when we had been growing and doing some terrific stuff around the world, but there was just something missing. I'd always had an interest and been watching very attentively to what was happening in New Zealand over the years. Always loved New Zealand. <laughs> and I thought they were doing some terrific stuff, you know. Yeah. And I had a thing around um, uh, uh, what's what I'm trying to take uh, textiles and fabric and what they were doing with their wall and things like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Their design. And I thought, these blokes are some of the best designers in the world because uh, – they were just kicking gold, left, right and centre. And lo and behold, the government put a program out there around what they call design to business, where you had the opportunity, you'd have to pay a bit of money and they'd help fund it. They would, they would come and help teach you how to bring, the, the, how to bring the, the principles of good design into your business. And one of the, and the essence of that is... How do you align all your values, your vision, your brand, your customer promise, uh, your customer cause, uh, and what you're promising your customers? How do you align all those things together? And the most important element of all that is understanding your purpose. Why are you doing what you're doing? Okay. Now, you right, blokes are good I'm at that. To, I'm glad to hear you say that because it's are... become a big thing, yeah. Yeah, you blokes are right on the money. And do you know what we, what we learned out of it? We learned that we weren't making turntables at all. That wasn't why we were selling turntables. 
because we'd, we'd evolved ourselves into other industries, particularly in driveway turntables and loading docks and things like that. We were in the business of selling space because with a turntable, by spinning a car around on a turntable or a truck, it takes 50% less area to do that than, by doing, than doing it by conventional means. If you have to reverse your car to your driveway, you've got to drive it out there and you've got to back onto the road and do so. Imagine that's a truck out in the car park of a loading dock. That takes yeah. a lot of area. Typically, yeah. it's about 400 square metres. Put on yeah. a turntable and it's 200 square metres for a semi-trailer. Yeah. So what we did is we said to, we, we realised that that was the sustainability in our business. We, if we sell, we're selling turntables, our business, we didn't know when it and how long it lasted. But when we're selling space, bang, we're on the money. And that just opened up the world for us and opened up industries left, right and centre. And that is the most pivotal moment in our business. I reckon there's something else you're selling too, uh, Paul, and I reckon you're selling safety. Yes. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah. you know, if people are backing back and forwards, I mean, that's got to yeah. be a more dangerous space than one where it's controlled on a turntable, for example. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the councils have recognised that. And councils, yeah. know, they don't yeah, let yeah. any old development go if people are backing out on the busy roads and so forth. So that's, that's taken us to another level, and, and rightly so, but we've embraced it and, and really uh, uh, um, committed ourselves passionately to doing this yeah. properly. Mm. Yeah, great. Fantastic. Now, so, um, I, wanna, yeah, Mark's got a question. Yeah, I, so, I speak too quickly, and if I don't, if I don't give lots of long pauses, I'm, so, I'm always yeah. cutting Mark off. His yeah, head, so. I'm the same. I, mm. <laughs> There you go. That was a demonstration of a long pause. Okay. <laughs> so um, building, moving to rotating, uh, uh, you know, rotating restaurants on top of buildings and things yeah. like that. How did that happen? What was the, you know, because that to me is a long way from your dad's driveway. So. Well, you know what? My dad had a part in that and he didn't know about it, but he would be very proud to know about it. He didn't know we did the world's largest revolving restaurant for the Iranian government in Iran, in Tehran, when other governments didn't want us to go there and do it, <laughs> Politic, because of political reasons. And the fact that my dad uh, was well-read and, of course, you know, went through the Depression and all that, so you imagine the age he was. I don't know how long dad's been dead. He'd been 20 years, I don't know. I should know, but I don't. I can't remember. Um, uh, yeah, he was old. He was 94 when he died. So he was born in 1907, I think it was. So he, he had, a, he, he had a, a great story himself. But as kids, he would uh, sit down and we uh, ran the fire and he had a great ear uh, for verse and, and poetry. And he'd just tell us stories. Well, let me tell you, 1,000 years ago when one of Persia's greatest uh, scholars, mathematicians and poets sat down and wrote some verse one day he wouldn't have known that a thousand years later his words catapulted a small engineering business into the stratosphere 
You know how it happened? Tell oh, me. No, I can't tell you. Yeah. But you're doing it. You're a very good storyteller. <laughs> no, well, it's, this is Dinky Die, and uh, I've told this story a number of times, and I hope any of your listeners haven't heard it because I've had to repeat it a couple of times but, uh, publicly. But it, it, is, it is true. We were asked to uh, tender on the world's largest restaurant for the Iranian government. Uh, following an expo we did in Dubai where the government representatives came onto our stand and visited us and asked us to have a look at doing this job. And it was a magnificent job. And and since 1999, when we had that first hiccup, one of the things I said to the boys was, we're going to do a revolving restaurant. (laughs) I can guarantee (laughs) that was a goal. Anyway, they approached us and... We uh, looked at the project and we uh, proposed something to them. And uh, and to cut a long story short, we eventually were awarded the project against the Chinese, Germans. Americans weren't in it. They didn't like the Americans. Uh, uh, the president at the time was Mr Asmodinejad and him and George Bush didn't particularly like each other. So the Americans were kept out of the loop. So there was the British, the uh, British, uh, uh, Germans, and the Chinese all tended. The British weren't going to get a look in either, and us. And we're the smallest company by far. Uh, and we were uh, eventually asked to go and present ourselves to the Minister for uh, um, Works in Tehran a chap by the name of Mr. Mir Sadeki. And Mir was a great big bloke. I'm six foot three. He was six foot six. Big dark eyes that the Iranians have. <laughs> dark, big crop of dark hair. And a big bloke all over. And uh, we went over and we presented to uh, this uh, committee of him, his, uh, his government uh, cohorts, uh, project managers, the architect, Mr. Reza Hafizi, the finance people and so forth. And I'd never done a deal in Iran ever before and we'd been advised not to, but we said, no, we're going to have a crack at this. And um, we went over, but to, go, to, to join them, they needed to organise an intermediary. And they did this and they organised a chap by the name of Mr. Shahin Shiriyar, a beautiful man. London educated, Iranian-born, London-educated lawyer who worked in the construction industry in Abu Dhabi. And I'd never met Shahin. And we went to, uh, we went to uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi first and met Shahin, and he was going to be our translator and our, and our intermediary and doing it if anything transpired. So we went there, and we knew when we went there we were a chance, and they were going to make a decision whilst we were there. They'd interviewed the other companies and they, we were the last to interview. And I can remember clearly, in fact, one of my favourite pictures is my son Ben and I sitting under the, under the photographs of the Ayatollah and the, and the President uh, Ayatollah Hamini. I think his name is Mohammed Hamini. Anyway, we're in this room with about uh, a dozen people from the Iranian government and all those people I mentioned. And we're doing, we're going through the the process of negotiation. And Shahin had warned us 
we'd already put out a proposal in. He said, hey, morning. He says, listen, uh, they're pretty tough negotiators, these lads, and, uh, and uh, you know, you'll, they'll, they'll, you'll have to earn, you know, you'll have to earn it if you get it. And we said, no worries, we're, we're up for that. And we'd loaded the quote up a little, just knowing that we weren't going to win the, win the battle <laughs> at the end of the day. So <laughs> we're in this room. And it came to pass that we'd been through all the technical preliminaries, uh, the commercial and technical proposals, through uh, some interpretation from Shahin, because half of the audience, half of the men in the room could speak English and half couldn't. Certainly the architect could, project manager could, Mr Chapman, and that was Mr Mohammed Tahidi. Toughest little bloke I've ever met in business in my life. Anyway, about four foot six. <laughs> <laughs> Real devil, a good bloke, though. And uh, during the course of the conversation, uh, Mayor Siddiqui, this bloke, Mayor Siddiqui, he was the head of this department, the Iranian government, and was eventually in line to be become the mayor of Tehran. And as I understand, if you come, become the mayor of Tehran, the next step is the presidency. Now, I'm not absolutely certain about that, but that's what I've been told. Anyway, he was high up. And we were getting on pretty well when he looked at me and he said to me, Mr. Chapamar. Uh, and then through Shahin, he asked the question, how can I trust you? <laughs> I wasn't really prepared for that. And Ben's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And the first thing I said through Shahin, and it's been a very tense meeting up to this point. Tense or ten, formal was more like, but no explicable reason that I said to him. The first thing I said, oh, Mr. Mr. Um, Mr. Siddiqui, you can trust me because I'm from Kangaroo Flat, <laughs> which is part of being. <laughs> Shahin translated it and the whole room burst into laughter. And I said, what are they laughing about, Shahin? And he says, well, you just translated that. Um, they can trust you because you're a squash kangaroo. You're a squash kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> but what that, did, what that did was it broke the ice. And I didn't know it was going to do that. But because people were laughing, it just, just eased things up. And then within two minutes, Mr. Dickey got up to me and he said, through Shane, thank you, Mr. Chapman, for your proposal. We, uh, we are, uh, you are not the cheapest in this, in this uh, presentation, in this uh, tendering process. But he says, what do you know about Iran? Now, that I wasn't, I wasn't uh, ready for. And you know what happened? I said, years with logic absolute. The two and seventy jarring sex conflict. That's S E C T S. The subtle alchemist within a thrice. Life's leaden metal into gold transmute. Oh, you were quoting from your father, were you? I was quoting from my dad, and he had just quote he had quoted to me, and I'd remember this. I had never said those words ever before in my life. I promise you. Wow. Something, I can't, I forget the first second word. And then I said. Iranian poet or something yeah. in Iranian poet. And then I said, um, myself, when young, myself when young would 
would eagerly frequent. Great scholar and saint to hear much argument about this and that, but came out the same door as in I went. And the whole room sat still when the architect Reza Hafizi stood up and he said in Persian or Farsi is their language to Mr. Uh, Siddiqui. He said, Mr. Siddiqui, Mr. Chapman has just quoted the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. And Siddiqui <laughs> stood up. Siddiqui stood up. He extended his hand to me and he said, Mr. Chapman, you, you, you had the contract. <laughs> oh. That's just And fantastic. we found that we were something like six times dearer than the Chinese. Is that right? Oh, wow. Oh, and, my God. And I, I sort of wanted to tell you that story because what it meant more than anything else, and we apply this in our business more than anything, more than anything you have to earn the trust of your, of your customer. And if you can earn that trust, you break down all those other hurdles and barriers. And trust but at the that, same time, but at the same time, Paul, it's a little bit like, um, uh, you know, the movie... Um, uh, slumdog millionaire where you know he doesn't know the questions but he answers them all right because of these little experiences he has in his life you know yeah. he has no idea what the questions are but then the questions asked and bam he's got the answer right and in some ways you know that was sort of similar you know you would have never have known that that was going to be the no. answer you're going to give in no. one of those one of those presentations. Right? And I reckon Dad was looking, I don't know if he's looking up or looking down, but he was... <laughs> he would have been impressed wherever he was looking, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned Slumdog, you know, I've got to tell you, uh, 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 a couple of years later, we were asked to present something to uh, the government in uh, Ahmedabad, uh, in the state of Gujarat, in India. And Ben I was, and I were staying, once again, we travelled together and we we're staying in the Crown Plaza. And uh, if you've been to India, uh, you, you know what it's like. It's a most wonderful place. But this is in the heart of a city of about five million people, I think they have. And Benny uh, says to me one day, he says, there's a slum right behind us. Let's see if we can go in and have a look. And we went down to the concierge and they said, we said, can we get permission to go through the slum you know we and the chap says you go through it my friend just take a bottle of water with you will you just take don't drink anything water in the slum he said feel free to walk through so we, we were reasonably casually dressed you know nice enough and, you know clean enough and went for a walk through the slum it was everything you'd expect but wonderful we didn't see people crying and howling and anything like that. People were just living day to day and quite living in their own circumstances and, and looked quite happily. We were seeing kids go to school in the most pristine white tops on. Just wonderful to see. But we're going through these streets, if you want to call them that, and lo and behold, we could hear these kids giggling and laughing a little further ahead and we, we turned the corner and here's a bunch of kids playing cricket with a... Um, with a homemade bat and they had a ball against the drum and drum up the other end. And I yelled out, Ricky Ponting. <laughs> and one of these little buggers, he, he turned around, he's like, they're like a bunch of meerkats, these little kids. 
they all turned around, heads up, turn, all turned at the same time, and one of them was smarter than us to say, Sachin Tanduka. <laughs> well, that's the response, isn't it? Yeah. So it was game on. You know, we played cricket with those kids for 25 minutes. They belted us and they did everything and we got us out and we're laughing. And I'd put that bottle of water I'd taken with me unopened on a, on a drum alongside uh, where we were playing. And when I went and walked away, when I went and walked away, after we thanked the kids and we went away, I hadn't gone five metres when there was a little kid came up to us, from, lived in the slums, came up, pulled on his shirt and he says, Mr, here's your bottle of water. Yeah, and people everywhere, right? For the kid, well, for the kids, it, it don't get, you know, wouldn't have seen that. Yeah. And it was another, just a, a, an anecdote, if you like, of just getting to know people and, and trust them. And I was reading your story in your bookmark, um, uh, Sean, about the chap who did the, uh, something very similar. In, yeah, in, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. India, and yeah. I could relate to that. It was good. Yeah. yeah. Sorry no, to take off all the time there. No, 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 it was wonderful. And, uh, you know, it just shows you the, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things, you know, we talk a lot in our program here uh, about some of the elements of storytelling. And there was some, there's some elements I wanted to just draw out. I love Mark's uh, views on this too. Um, for example, uh, one of the things that you can be easily drawn into incorrectly in a story is to try to say it too quickly, right? Yeah. And not um, enjoy the pauses, right? Yeah. And, and I think one of the things you did so well in your storytelling are the pauses. But also what I love is all those little snippets of the, you remember everyone's name, which is always a, an amazing mm. feat with a story, but also just those little character descriptions of each person. You only say a couple of things, but yeah. it's enough for you to sort of go, ah, I've got a bit of an, in, an insight into uh, what that person's like. Uh, yeah. They're the sort of things that just make a story a little bit more interesting. Yeah. Anything jump out for you, Mark? So um, for me, there was a series of big stories that you told there. But I have, like, I've been just been making notes. There is, I don't know, maybe there's maybe 10 little snippets of things that I'm just going, oh, that is gold. Um, yeah, you know, just the little stories in between. Just the, yeah. the, the, the things that are, well, firstly, the, you know, the innovation, you know, 1999, you know, the guy borrows your stuff and well, hires it, sorry. Mm. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the lesson about innovation um, the 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 moment of connection that yeah. uh, that came uh, uh, in that uh, in that room in uh, in Tehran. It was Tehran, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. beautiful place, Tehran, and, and as safe as safe as houses. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. My wife and I visited a number of times, and it was just oh, we were wonderfully looked after, wonderfully. Yeah. I, I guess it's the imagery that I thought was fantastic. You know, I could see the little kid tugging yeah. on your shirt and handing you that bottle. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that's good. I think um, I think uh, the hospitality industry helped there a lot, fellas. Uh, you know, everybody's got a story, uh, and you most certainly when you're a public and you need to listen and you learn to listen, um, and you learn to listen for one very good reason. We apply this in our work as well, and that is this: you want the person who comes into your business, who he's coming into your business to give you money. He's here there to give you money. He wants a little bit of service here, but then he's going to leave again. And we take the view that you want that person to leave happier than when they walk in. 
just that yeah. little bit happier. And if we do that in all our businesses then uh, and our lives you know, works, then I think that's uh, something that you can, you can say, okay, that was good. doesn't always happen. Some people, you know, it's difficult to make happen, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, and, and like for, for any manager out there, I always think when you've had a conversation with somebody, do they walk away from that conversation more engaged than they did before or less yeah. engaged than yeah. when they walked in? So it's like every though, every moment is an opportunity to build engagement or to uh, erode it. Yes. So, and again, on your, on your book, I was on your website, I was reading, uh, reading where you... Uh, the two CEOs, one the new CEO and the former and the, and the former CEO, had different approaches. And, yeah, uh, Sean, that's right on the money. I mean, you can see people's eyes glaze over when when uh, what do you call them um, powerpoints go up. Hey, tell me, does your um, do your sons also uh, share stories as a, a natural way of communicating? Yeah, uh, they're very good at it, and they bring uh -huh. a great—they bring a great deal of humour to it. Good, <laughs> the good, good, good. Is, the reason is, we've got to laugh. We've got to laugh because we've botched a lot of things up in our time, you know. And we say, "Oh well, there you go. Get on, yeah, get on with it." But uh, at the same time, we know that uh, uh, it, it's been for us the strength in this business for me, uh, fellas, has been. That we've had a family, uh, this is three sons, and now their wives and their families all stick, all do, uh, all committed, all get on well. We see each other weekends, believe it or not, and looking after kids, and the kids all get on well, and in particular the wives get on well. So that, more than anything else for this business, has been its strength. If I, uh, I don't know if we would have achieved what, and some great things we have achieved, and it's only still at the start for us um, uh, if that hadn't been there. So that whole purpose, sense of uh, direction, understanding the goals, what we're all there to do, just makes that a little bit easier. Now, my oldest son now is managing director, and I remember yep. saying to him clearly, I said, Benny, it's a lot easier for a patriarch to be the managing director than it is for a sibling. You're going to have a tougher gig at managing directing than I did because... You know, it's a matter of they're respectful and they can they can have a have a crack at you if they want to. Uh, over, over the time, we all know bringing bringing kids up, but um, uh, he's done a, an extraordinary job there, and that would be the biggest strength in this in this little enterprise. Yeah, but that's great. We are certainly well, are going strength to strength. That's a good story. Well, we probably should wrap it up there. It's uh, uh, time is ticking on. Is there? Um, Anything else we need to, to cover off on, Mark? It's a good place uh, to, to end yeah, up, isn't it? I, that was, I, I've got so many additions to my story bank from this. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been an absolute <laughs> I just, pleasure. I just remembered the second word of that verse. It was the grape that logic absolute. The two and seventy uh -huh. going. Ah, see, grapes, wines. Yeah. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yep. That's that time of day, fellas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. o'clock. Well... Thank you, Paul. It's, it's been such a pleasure uh, hanging out with you for the last hour or so. So um, I just want to say to all of our listeners, yeah, thanks again for listening in to Anecdotally Speaking. And, of course, tune in next week for another episode of How to Put Your Stories to Work. So bye for now.
Anecdotally Speaking was engineered by Dave Stokes from Author to Audio.